Hello and welcome to Doctor Who 50 Years Ago, the show that looks back to the episode that aired in 1970 and looks at the differences between then and now. This week, episode two of Inferno. Are you settled? We're unsettled. I am Ben. I am Luke. And I am Nick. And here we are, and here we go, into the news from 1970. On Monday the 11th of May, the Times of London reports that single women staying at home to look after ageing parents are living below the poverty line, as well as saving the country millions of pounds a year because they are taking on the financial as well as the social burden of caring for those parents instead of the state or private hospitals or homes for the elderly doing so. There are estimated 250,000 women who remain single, lonely, bereft of finance, of good housing and good health as well, strained by the task that they perform. These numbers are in addition to the upcoming 1971 census. Part-time work is also recognised as a be-all and end-all to working women. More than half of the 8 million that were working in 1970 are purported to be earning five shillings an hour or 25 pence in today's money because inflation inflates. I ask you to please compare this kind of poverty with the modern poverty of today that you may see or experience and understand that problems have evolved as well as progress. Well, in, in a lot of ways, it sounds like where we are now, really. It doesn't sound like things... It's like things have improved a bit, but then also they haven't. I, I mean, to be fair, we have improved in a lot of ways since then. So maybe absolute poverty is lower than it was 50 years ago, but relative poverty is still very much a thing. On Wednesday the 13th of May, that well-known figure, the Prince of Wales, heir to the British throne, 21 years old and crowned the year before, speaks at a union debate at Cambridge on a motion about how technological advancement is threatening, quote, the individuality of man, unquote. The prince is mildly sympathetic to this motion and also speaks a little about his passion about conservation of nature. Concord, the British supersonic jet plane, has made its mark in creating sonic booms, which is a technological achievement, at the cost of shattered windows and increased pollution. The Prince of Wales also raises the key question of the reasons for achieving technological advancement. 50 years on, we have technology doing amazing things as well as frightening things. And the question of what is the point for technological advancement remains. It's a question of man's relationship with his creations, with technology, with the tools fashioned by him and around him. What is interesting here though is the fixation on Concord. And that shows how humans, we like to fixate on the, the sort of the sexy technology. But actually, Concord didn't really change the world at all, even though people might have felt it would at the time. And it's other things, uh, the small things you don't notice that do change the world. So, and he does mention electric cars, which was actually a little bit more prescient. So it's interesting that the things that we don't, that don't change the world, we fixate on a lot, don't we? as a species. Yes, 
small things do matter in the case of technological advancement. Yeah. Yeah. So like, um, it's a good example of a uh, technological change that's really changed the world, but people didn't Pacemakers. really think about. Hmm? Pacemakers. Yeah. Yeah, so, 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 uh, you got any ideas on a technology that changed the world, but it's not no one really thought about? Uh, the axle. Yeah. Definitely uh, in terms um, of transportation. Well, also you got um, well the internet just people just sort of snuck up on people didn't it internet well, and mobile phones but there was a lot of talk about it at the time there was a lot of talk but it did still kind of sneak up on people Not compared really. to well compared to like concord or something where it was like all trumpeted and it led nowhere hmm. the byron the ballpoint pen oh yeah no one ever thought okay, about okay. the ballpoint pen so there's a few examples of of technologies that people don't think about but I haven't changed the world. Pacemakers, axles, uh, ballpoint pen or biro, whatever. Well, biro is the brand. But Concord, well, hey, it's going to destroy cathedrals. And on a lighter note, lemmings are on the warpath in Finnish Lapland, attacking animals, hissing at humans and invading villages. The point of the article, however, is to address humanity's relationship with nature. In Finnish Lapland, just 65 miles from the Arctic Circle, lemmings are engaged in a battle not to be run over by cars. And the fact that human transportation has paved its way or is able to traverse through the snow and trees towards the Arctic Circle just shows how human habitation can negatively affect nature. I think what this really shows is that 30 years on from the Second World War, you can kind of make light-hearted comments about it. You know, this is obviously just a fluff piece of, oh, those stupid Laplanders. The, the subjugation of the, of the Lapish is, uh, is for another day. But um, essentially, it's interesting how we're now starting to get the, you know, oh, isn't this a bit quirky, as opposed to, oh my god, it's coming back, it's coming back. Yes, for reference, they were referring to the fact that lemmings did the same before the First and Second World Wars. Check your lemmings is the element of the news, and that indeed was the news. And now we shall get into Inferno, episode two, aired Saturday the 16th of May 1970. The lemmings would indeed be migrating for this episode as it slowly develops the threat of the altered humans and dares to connect it to the forces of nature on the Earth itself whilst also having a bit of frivolity with a computer. We've had tangent seaweed and giant fish the size of the River Thames in Doctor Who, but to recognise the Earth as an autonomous life form which can develop green slime, which reduces humans to their primeval state, is a fascinating concept by Don Horton and brilliantly executed by the directorship of Douglas Canfield and Barry Letts, I believe. I always called him Don Horton, and I realised in my head I was actually saying Don Cotton, and I've never been able to get the image of Don Horton as Don Cotton out of my head ever since that moment. Just a little fun fact, sorry. This one carries on the main theme of the first episode, which is 
it's unsettling. The whole way through, it, it really likes just keep hitting you with this unsettling background noise. And so props to the radiophonic uh, department because that really makes this serial and just establishing that atmosphere. Agree. That's, that's what I love about this serial is, is it's just it's it it starts off in that whole bit with the the volcanic eruption whatever. It's showing you, you know, we we this is the horror serial. This is the scary one. We're gonna scare you. And Don Horton went on to write some very scary things for Hammer Horror, such as the one Dracula one with all those kung fu monks in it. Okay. <laughs> yes, that very that famously scary. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very famously scary kung fu monks. Yes. Yes. <laughs> oh, so he wrote Tooth and Claw. <laughs> hey. Yeah. So. As we've said, it is a ridiculously unsettling setting in that we've got industrial landscape talking about the forces of nature and eerie techno music from the radiophonic workshop to sear into your soul. I, I love using that term. I'll keep using it into that term because Inferno is seared into my soul. Let's take a look at it in further detail. I was going to say, let's drill deep into it. But... Plus, setting infernos in your soul, you know, at least your soul's not in inferno. Yes, yes, Dante would be proud. Right, I think it's time to drill down further into this episode. Thanks, Nick. The Doctor and the Brigadier are face-to-face -face with the little green man in the power room. Thank you, Australian continuity announcer. There's a tussle between a unit soldier and the green man, which allows the doctor to turn the power down and stop a disaster whilst Sutton pumps coolant into the drill. The green man survives two bullets to the heart, but not the reduction in temperature. Disaster averted, Sutton wants extra safety precautions at the drill head to, you know, stop that from happening again. But Starman is less interested and blames apparent incompetence instead. Petra is more grateful, however, which is nice, I suppose. Now, what I like about this bit is uh, the Doctor asks the Brig for his pistol and then uses it to turn off the switch or move the switch about on the thing and um, save the day. And I, I feel like that's a very intentional bit of visual storytelling by um, Barry Letts, I assume, because we're in the studios. But reading off of Dougie Canfield's notes, um, to show, hey, Doctor is willing to use, you know, means to... He's willing to yeah. use brawn in a brainy way. Yes, yeah. exactly. Rather than shoot uh, in, a, in a more kind of thoughtless uh, science fiction thing, the hero might just shoot the terminal, the computer, you know, the, the computer bank and blow it up. And that would save the day. But here the Doctor's much smarter about it and uses the gun as a way to just hook it there because it's too hot for him to touch. Very much so. Yeah, you could also argue he's more calculating because in this entire scene, you don't look at the brig. He's not commanding his men. Wyatt is going to his position. You cut to the Doctor who recognises that Wyatt is there and about to do something. Does he intervene? No, he doesn't. He allows it to happen. Very calculating. Yeah, no... Yeah, this whole serial screams, 
the doctor is an alien. He's among us, but he's not of us. Very true. What I like here is the monster is the monster of headphone warnings. You know, there's that real... This also reminds me of last week when... when Wow, that's killed your sound, Luke. Yeah, yeah, we can't hear you anymore. Oh, right. Uh, You sound like you're whispering. (laughs) Amazing, it's broken your entire technology. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, he really does sound muffled now, doesn't he? Yeah, it's, it's basically broken the sound chip or something. Hopefully not. He's basically, yeah, he's literally now? hit the... How about now? How about now? Getting louder. Getting better, yeah. Still not perfect. Oh, it's not going to be the equipment. It's going to be Skype. Oh, no, there you are. You're getting yeah, louder. Yeah, you're back now. You're back. You're back. Yeah, it was Skype um, saying, oh, he's too loud. We better... Um, Mix him down. Yeah. <laughs> well, finally, yeah. I, I've got that some good bonus point, content. Luke. This just totally proves your point about the headphone thing, doesn't it, Luke? It really does. Okay. So, that, so my point is basically that when you've got limited resources, you have to throw everything at a scene in order to make it look weird. Here they're using the really loud screaming of Krakatoa. Last week we were using all the strange reflections and stuff and that really strange screaming, that mechanical whirring in the background. You had to really put your mind to find things that were strange in order to make something look strange. Whereas nowadays, it's just somebody tapping away on a computer. Well, yeah, the main things, as you say, Luke, they're in the background, and they're just... There's not a lot of it, but there's just enough to just create this sense of dread whilst watching Inferno unfold before your eyes. It's very true that this is very much a more indirect impact. And as you say, compare that and contrast it to modern television and modern Doctor Who of the day, where there is very much more emphasis on the direct impacts to make sure the viewer has definitely gotten the gist of it. Subtle versus unsubtle. Mm, There are many levels to Inferno. Yes, and we will descend through them one by one. Private Wyatt and the technician, both hit by the changed maintenance man, are seemingly in shock. The doctor and the brigadier discuss this incident. Slocum's body cells were retro-regressing, as if he was turning into some sort of animal. The doctor believes that the noises Slocum was making were like those of Krakatoa, the Indonesian islands which erupted in 1883, and were one of the deadliest and most violent volcanic eruptions in history. This scene is the best, because we've got two actors talking it out in a brilliant location with that brilliant background music to fully unnerve you. Canfield knows what he's doing, and he's bringing out the horror and dread that this story demands, or lets. Nevertheless, Wyatt and the technician escape the medics and the doctor chases Wyatt, who is also changing into whatever Slocum was. A fight happens and Wyatt falls to his death, but that leaves the also changing technician lurking in the background. Yes, no, this scene is one of the absolute highlights of this serial for me. 
And what I think is very interesting about it is the way that it's shot and the music, or if you could even call it music, that there aren't sudden camera movements. It's mostly, you know, I mean, they didn't really do that much back then, you know, constant cutting between different shots. You know what I mean? An uh, action scene that you do nowadays, hmm. Luke? Is, is that Absolutely. the name? Absolutely, yep. It's always filmed too choppy, so you can't see what's going on. Yeah, uh, so it's mostly long shots. Uh, it's obviously John Pertwee doing his stunts, as it were. Um, and the music is very, that, again, it's that sort of unnerving, just low hum. And if it was something shot nowadays, a thing I think about from New Who, where some sort of chase scene, as it were, the Planet of Ood um, from 2008, Series 4, with David Tennant. There's a whole bit where he runs around and there's that thing chasing after him, that the hand or whatever, the mechanical hand. And it's like, bum, 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 ba-da-dum, bum, bum, ba-da-dum. The music's blaring, whatever. And this is so different from that, isn't it? Yeah. Just, just give you an example of something more modern where there's a chase. So they're here. This is bigging up how somehow this is just totally unnerving and there's so much less going on here. But it's so much better than something with so many more moving parts to it. It's interesting. Sometimes more is less, or less is more, I should say. Both. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, yeah. And yeah. Then, in addition to the point that I made about uh, the doctor using the pistol as a way to solve the situation in an orthodox way, here again, we see how Camfield is a brilliant director with his visual storytelling because. We've got Private Wyatt. Now, of course, we've actually seen him fire the gun at Slocum earlier in the, in the episode. Here, to show how he's regressed, he's now waving the gun around as a club. Easy, it's an easy way for you to see how he has mentally regressed it back to a caveman or primordial state. He uses it in a brawny way, and that indeed is his downfall as the motion of him using it in a brawny way makes him fall over the railing to his death. Again, all this, this again pushes the point about the Doctor uses the gun in a clever calculating way that is peaceful and it totally works. Guy uses a gun, <clears throat> Private Wyatt uses the gun in a brawny way and he falls to his death because of it. Passivism is a good thing. Very much so. Stallman wants to accelerate the drill rate. Sir Keith and Greg Sutton have jarred up a substance of the green slime from the drilling. The doctor, meanwhile, is worried about its connections to Krakatoa. The brigadier and Sir Keith try to tell Stallman to see reason about the deaths and the safety matters, but he does not. Liz recognises the computer warning against drilling through the Earth's crust, and we try to convince Stallman that way. It doesn't work. The jar of green slime cracks and Starman shoves it back in its box, burning his hand and making it go all green. This does not bode well. Starman, wanting quick completion of his project, reroutes the power away from the doctor's hut. Starman is basically anti-bureaucratic inertia, which, given all the bureaucratic inertia we've seen in the last few serials, is an interesting subversion. It really is, because... All of the villains in this serial are bureaucratic people and the Doctor is just... I love how the Doctor should be wanting to get away from Earth 
Earth is awful in this season. I would want to get away from it. And it's all these authority figures who are saying, This meddling doctor, ever since he turned up, everything went to hell. No wonder he feels like he wants to get away. Exactly. It's basically reminding him of his own planet. Yeah, the enemy is Earth and its systems. Literally, the enemy is the Earth in this serial, and to a lesser extent in the Silurian. The, the green goo really does represent. It's the Earth fighting back against being... Drilled into. Yes, being drilled into, Ben. It, this is the Earth saying, enough is enough. You cannot keep using the Earth just as something to give you resources. The Earth is worth protecting. It is its own living, breathing thing. It does not deserve to be used by something unimportant. So it's kind of strange that Don Horton and Terence Dix even knew about this because there wasn't much written about it. I was looking in the Times of London and for on Google Books and Google Scholar for anything that had survived from this time period about the Russian super deep borehole that but but the thing is is that you had a very similar American one in the 1960s which was abandoned in 1966 due to money it was to test the theory of plate tectonics and in 1971 you had four USSR super deep boreholes in 1973 you had 20 so this is actually a major thing within the community of the world. Ben, I would saying? argue that I would argue that this is a reaction to the Americans having won the space race because having gone up, what else is there to do but to go down? Well, you're absolutely correct. The Project Mohol in the USA was in fact given any money by the government because of the space race this is thank like... you for reminding me of the mohole project that was the one that don Horton was inspired by i thought it was the russian one he was inspired by All yeah happy... then he, thought, he talked he talked to the americans and the americans could not confirm nor deny it okay the, no, no no it doesn't matter the point is you dig a lot people were digging a lot around this time right that's the that's the point i quite like how in this one it's so isolated and low-key versus the ambassadors of death which is this not globetrotting, but this epic spy thriller, because it really does exemplify how the two were seen by the public, in the sense of the earth drilling was not seen by the public and nobody really cared, because it was about testing plate tectonics and drilling to find minerals. It wasn't about astronauts being lovely and celebrities. It was just people standing around in a drill centre saying, yeah, it's drilling some more. No, no, nobody cares about that. Mineralogists over macro-celebrities. Absolutely. The Doctor surreptitiously reconnects power to his hut. Stallman has a fit and removes a, removes a micro-circuit from the computer, wanting to smash it. The Doctor catches him in the act and tries to stop him with a bit of Venusian karate, but too late, Stallman hides it and accuses the Doctor of sabotaging the project. When the Doctor disappears off in a huff, Stallman destroys the microcircuit, and so the computer breaks down. The Doctor returns to his hut, and for the second time that episode, convinces Liz to get out of his way so he can do another trial run with the TARDIS, the conniving alien. 
Discovering his deception, the Brigadier and Liz return to watch the Doctor, the TARDIS console and Bessie dematerialise. And my one question is, why doesn't Liz turn off the power before Stallman does? The plot is probably the answer. Well, it's an interesting point here to talk about is the, the way that they uh, react to the computer, the characters. And um, so, one, the fact that Stallman is going around saying, oh, the computer's wrong, and no one calls him out on this as being, that that's a ridiculous statement to make, 50 years hence. This idea that, that a scientist of all people, considering having, having been into university labs, computers are everywhere, uh, that, that a scientist is is saying, is poo-pooing what the computer has to say, well, nowadays that just couldn't work. That would mark Yeah, him but out you're not supposed saying. to be on his side. You're supposed to think, no, wow, no, Starman's an idiot. So, but I mean, no. But what's interesting is no one, no one else calls him out on this. Like the brigadier doesn't, Liz doesn't, the doctor doesn't, and that shows how we've moved the on. Do- the doctor does. Well, well, he does, but well, not specifically for the computer. He says about, oh, he, you're breaking this microprocessor, but he doesn't actually. This is where the doctor he says, to, you know. The doctor basically the episode, says, "I hate computers, but it's it's important to use the tool." Well, but no, this is where the doctor is actually quite interesting. He acts like an actual alien here because he he knows that Stallman's got the thing in his pocket, the microprocessor, and he does the Venusian karate, but doesn't just immediately say to the brigadier, "Oh, just take the thing out of his pocket." He lets him go, lets him walk, wander out, doesn't tell the brigadier what he's thinking whatever and then he's like oh we must ask you some questions he acts very weird about it and it's showing he's not human he's not having human thought processes is he Hmm. it also helps for Stallman to have the time to break the microprocessor and then get the plot going I suppose yes yes yeah but Hmm. still but Uh, but indeed the point is is the use of the computer and who is trusting of it and who is not trusting of it it is funny where where they do. The computer has a message about oh, they should stop the drilling because it's too dangerous. But all the characters treat the computer as though it's a a person saying. Oh, the computer has a message for us. It's not just oh, there's been some notification on the computer. Or whatever. They're, they're they're humanizing it, but if only because they still haven't developed vocabulary around a computer yet. Yes, and it's that desperate turn to humanise it in order to understand the, the technological advancement. What, when else do they humanise it? It's, it's, it's not like when he's taking the microcircuit out, they're like, you're hurting it. The doctor says, look, it's already packing up. He's talking about it like a old Buick. I, su- I suppose it's, it's a halfway house towards humanising it compared with what we have today. Well, as I think it's more of the fact that there just wasn't the, the popular vocabulary around computers then as there is now. Thank you very much for watching. You can find us on Blogspot, which redirects to iTunes. Leave positive comments there because it really helps. You can also find us on Facebook and YouTube, where you can like, comment and subscribe. And please do all of those things nicely. Join us next week to slip sideways, thank you Sidney Newman, into episode three of Inferno. Until then, I have been Ben. I have been Luke. 
And I've been Nick. Thank you, and goodbye. Thank you.